0: change our lives forever. Lord, speak now. We are here to hear from you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so growing up, I think all kids play two games. The first is tag, right? Chase, and maybe you called it. You run around, you just expel as much energy as possible, trying to evade the it. Right now, they've created freeze tag and balloon tag and bandana tag. We all played tag. All right, you may or may not have been good at it. You may or may not still be good at it. I'm not sure, but we can play that maybe one Sunday. Next, the other game we all played, or at least I hope you played or you missed out, is Hide and Go Seek, or Hide and Seek. I I loved Hide and Seek. It was so much fun because you go and you're tactical and you're strategic and you have to have keen eyes and watching and looking and you knew who had the best spots in their yard and, you know, you had your favorite spot. Well, we loved the game of hide-and-seek. What was great about hide-and-seek is that you could play it on rainy days inside May or may not have, your parents may or may not have liked it, but if some of you played hide-and-seek inside and you laid under beds, you climbed up in closets, my favorite spot was between the shower curtain and the shower liner because when they pull open the curtain to see inside the tub, I'm not there. And so you could hide in a very good spot. So that's just free advice for you in your future of playing. Um, So, Kristen, when y'all are playing later, make sure to look in between the shower curtain and shower liner for Kevin. I think he may be there today. Um, so that was awesome I also remember those summer nights around dusk there was a cul-de-sac in our neighborhood and we would just play most of the people we knew and some people you're just running through their random yard but I loved playing hide and seek It, it was so much fun see hide and seek as a game is fun as we transition to the story of David it was for his life and it probably wasn't nearly as much fun See, David, as we learned a few weeks ago with Jonathan, that the king, Saul, is ready to kill David, and he is searching to destroy him. So David is now in a real-life game of hide-and-seek, of cat-and-mouse, just trying to evade the king. David, because of this, has had to leave the king's court. He's had to stop really spending time with his friend, the king's son. And he's probably had to even abandon his wife, the king's daughter, in this experience. David said in Ephesians, Ephesians, 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 3, he said, death is but a step away from me. David knows that the king is hot on his He is a fugitive on the run, the most wanted man in Israel, and not because he did anything wrong, but because of the jealousy and the envy and the rivalry and the paranoia of the king, David is now running away. And so when he and Jonathan depart, he is about five miles north of Jerusalem where King Saul would be. And David travels a little bit, actually south, towards the kingdom and towards Jerusalem. He travels about a mile or two to the city of Nob. And when he gets there, he shows up. He's exhausted and he's weak. And verse 3 tells us in chapter 21, verse 3, it says, Now then, what do you have on hand? He goes to the priest. He says, What do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. This is cluing us into the experience David is already having. He is exhausted. He is tired. He is starving. He and the few people that are with him at this point are just scraping by, and it is such a desperate and dire situation that the priests make a special exemption and give David the holy bread to eat. This would have been reserved only for the, uh, the priest and the clergy. And yet, because they look at their situation and their great need, they say, okay, you guys can eat this. But he doesn't stay in Nob too long. I'm going to throw a map on the screen for you. Actually, Julia is. Uh, you probably can't see all of that, but I just want you to see the movement. So he starts off in Nob at the very top, and then he goes all the way to... It's on that side he goes all the way to gath he travels 25 miles west gath may some of you bible trivia people may remember gath is the city of goliath goliath of gath it's interesting he shows up into the place where he definitely has a reputation He took down their champion, their giant, their biggest, strongest, baddest dude. He is defeated. And he shows up there. And when David shows up in Gath in chapter 21, he acts as though he is deranged and out of his mind. He acts as a madman. It actually says that spittle is dripping from his beard. He's acting as though he is a crazy person. Why? Because he knows that crazy people are avoided. And so he assumes that he can get rest in sanctuary in Gath away from Saul, avoiding all of that, and he is going to rest there. But at the end of chapter 21, he is sent out. It says in uh, verse... I don't have this on the screen. Verse 14, um, Achish says, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? We don't need more people out of their mind in our area. He says, get him out of here. And so David now can't stay in Gath. He's now sent to these, or he goes to these caves of Adullam. He goes about 10 miles east. I'll email you this map so it may be easier for you to watch and see and follow along um, tomorrow. And here when he is in his cave, I think this is the lowest moment in David's life. For all intents and purposes, he's alone. One writer says it this way. He says he's lost everything. He lost his lofty rank, his seat at the king's table, the bed he once shared with the king's daughter. He is homeless. He is despairing. He lacks every resource you would need to escape from the king that is trying to kill him. He has no food. He has no money. He has no weapons. He has no comrades. It's a pretty terrible situation. And in chapter 22, verse 1, it says this. David departed from Gath, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and his father's house heard it, they went down um, there to him. Verse 2 says, And so did everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul. They gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were about 400 men. So David was in his lowest moment. He is in this cave, most likely even by himself at this point. He is despairing and struggling to find any rest, any refuge. And then all of these people show up. And you would think, wow, what a shot in the arm, what a pick-me-up. His family showed up. As a person who lives out of state from any family members, we understand that it's uplifting when your family comes in. It's exciting. And you read that and you go, wow, his family, they they want to go help him out. That's what I thought at first. And then I began reading and some more educated people than me said, actually, the family were having to flee as well. Because they know that if Saul can't find David quickly, he's going to start asking the family, what do you know about him? Where is he? And he will probably try with whatever means necessary to extract that information from them. And so they are fleeing in chapter 22 from their comforts and from their house and from what they love and the life they've built out of fear from what David has now gotten them into. So they show up probably not excited about being in a cave when they used to have a farm. That They are now on the run with him. On top of that, all of these people that are in distress, all of these people that are in debt, all of these people that are bitter in soul, this ragtag bunch shows up to be with David. And let me just tell you, this isn't the people that you draft to be with you. This isn't the, the people that you go, all right, I'm going on this journey that if I struggle on this journey or if I lose on this journey, I die. Who do I want to surround myself with? Oh, yeah, people that don't pay their bills, people that are struggling, people that are doing this. No, David has now gotten all of these people, this, you know, motley crew, to be his group that he is now to take care of, that he is now to lead. People that are showing up with all this stress, with all this debt, with all these problems. And I think from a logical standpoint, they go, we can't stay in the caves anymore. 400 men, there's probably some women and children with them, 400 men aren't going to be able to hide out in caves, and so... Again, the map will show you, and this is where he goes the furthest to Moab. I think you can read that one. So he goes to Moab. Why Moab? Maybe because his, his great-grandmother was from Moab, Ruth, a Moabite woman. Maybe he was thinking, okay, well, I know there's some, somebody may lean on to me here. So he travels all the way down the uh, Dead Sea and around it. And to give you reference, this will be his furthest journey, and judging by the legend, we're probably about a 45-mile journey, 50-mile journey down um, to that place. He's just trying to get away, Further uh, further enough away from Saul's reach, or even Saul's eye, so no longer being bothered or a burden to the king. Can he just go and get rest? He gets there, he thinks that's going to be a great place, and then a prophet shows up in chapter 22, verse 5. And here's what the prophet says. Do not remain in the stronghold where it's safe. No, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. He's the prophet from God, says, hey, I know you're out here in Moab, but I called you to be the king of Israel. you got to go back. So David packs up after a journey to Moab and goes right back into danger. He gets at least some natural camouflage in the forest, and that's where he will hang out for a while. There's a few other places he will stop in, but while he is hanging out in those forests with the natural camouflage and cover, David gets word that Saul showed up to Nob, the first place that he stopped in, the place where he ate the bread where he was starving. Saul shows up to Nob and says, hey, where's David? They said, I don't know. We haven't seen him in a while. No, no, no. I, you need to tell us where David is. No, we really don't know. We helped him and we let him on your way. Oh, you helped him? You know the king's enemy? You're helping? And Saul then enlists a guy to then kill all of the priest and Nob. He enlists a guy named Doeg the Edomite. And it tells us that he killed 85 persons who wore the linen ephod, meaning 85 Levites. But not just that. Listen listen to verse 19 of chapter 22. And I know we're jumping, but follow. We're just following the story here. It says, he put to the sword all the priests, and then both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. Saul is deranged, fearful, and on a tirade, scorching the earth in his attempt to find David. Nowhere is safe. No one is safe. This is the situation. Why do we look at this history? Because I want you to understand that this is David we're talking about. The one that we met as a child who his father didn't think much of him, but Samuel said he is the Lord's anointed who God called in from shepherding to say, no, I want to anoint you to be my king. I have a purpose and a plan for you. I will let you stand in front of the uh, the giant Goliath and you will defeat him because of your faith. You are the one that I have given so much uh, gifts to and talent to and I've protected and brought battles and victory through. And yet... This is David's experience in life. Chased, fleeing, running constantly. The chosen one of God is experiencing hunger and I'm sure thirst. He is tired, he is sleepless, he has no rest, no comfort, no ease. He has had to fight battles, he has watched innocent blood be spilled because of him. He is trying to take and care and lead these people, this ragtag bunch that he has. All of this is happening while he's in this game of hide-and-seek for his life. This isn't the script we would have written for our future and great king who is after God's own heart. So we started off for these first seven, eight minutes looking at the physical aspect of David in the game of hide-and-seek but there's also an emotional and internal and mental toll it takes. I'm going to step out on a limb here, okay? When I play the game of hide and seek, you go and you hide. And then you can hear that person counting. 99, 100. And then they say the famous line, ready or not, what? Here I come. When those words are said, I'm going to tell you, and I hope somebody else agrees with me on this. If you do, you're welcome to raise your hand. When those words are said or when that person gets close, Sean, you're like smiling because I think you may understand. Does anybody feel like they're about to pee themselves? (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Like this nervous, antsy energy overtakes my whole body, and I may be the only person in the history of the world who does that. But I just get this overwhelming feeling that, like, I just can't be still and I can't control and I just nervous and anxious. The best way I can describe it, because I don't want to say pee myself again, um, that there's this toll that it takes. There was more than just the physical toll that it would take on David as he's fleeing, with no real place to set up camp, no real place to set up his home. Always on the run, the mental and the emotional toll David records for us in the book of Psalms. If you have your Bible, I would love for you to flip to Psalm chapter 142. Psalm chapter 142. The reason why I ask you, because yes, it's going to be on the screen, and yes, you can see that, but even if you're using a phone, look at Psalm 142. And what does it say at the top? It says, a mascal of David, when he was in the cave, a prayer. This is the recording of David while he was on the run in the cave. How do we know how he feels? Well, he tells us. Let's read the seven verses of Psalm 142. It says this, With my cry I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before Him. I tell my trouble before Him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, there is none who take notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Verse 5, I cry out to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Verse 7, though there's hope, bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. David, how do we know how he feels? Well, he tells us. He writes to God what is going on in his life during this time. He says, my complaint is before you. My spirit is weak. The path that I'm on is dangerous and treacherous and terrifying. And I feel as though I'm alone on this journey, verse 4 tells us. But verse 5 points to where he is looking, his response. How does he handle the valley? I cry to you, O Lord. You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. You are my only hope, God. In verse 6 and 7, he tells us, I pray to you for deliverance, for release, for goodness, verse 7 says, for blessing. See, David here is honest with his circumstance. He's very clear to God. This is my circumstance. He's clear in whom he trusts. God, I'm looking to you. And he is confident in what will happen. It's interesting. We've talked here a lot, and I've said from this stage, we have to stop praying to God. Can you do this? Can you fix it? Can you heal me? Can you stop that? We need to pray, Lord, you can, will you? We pray questions of faith, not with faith. We need to be confident that God can. We need to be clear with Him about our situation and that we trust Him and Him alone. See, David knows that God can. It's why He has made him his refuge, his shelter, his hope, his deliverer. Because only God can do this for David. Let's look at Psalm 57. If you still have your Bibles open, flip back a few. Psalm 57, what does it start with? Again, to the choir master, according to do not destroy. That threw me off this week. What in the world is do not destroy? It's just the tune that we set this to. A mitcom of David, just a, a writing, a praise, a, a prayer. It says, when he fled from Saul, where? In the cave. How do we know what David's experiencing? Because he's writing it to God, and we are reading it firsthand. He says this, be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in my soul takes refuge. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Till the storms of destruction pass by, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purposes for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples over me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. David's real clear. Later in verse 6, he will say, danger's all around me. They set a net for my steps. They dug a pit in my way. And yet, David still trusts the character of God even before he gets deliverance from God. He says in verse 9 and 10, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. Among the peoples. I will sing your praises among the nations. Verse 10 For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Let me say that one more time when I said before I read those. Before deliverance, David decides to praise. Before he's delivered, he's decided to praise. Why? Because he has full faith in the character of his God, full trust. That the God who anointed him will be the God who crowns him. Friends, let me tell you following God never was, never is, and never will be the easy way. Following God never was, never is, and never will be the easy way. But Jesus makes it very clear in John 14:6, it's the only way. It's the only way to come to the Father. You may be tired today and weak. You may be exhausted and overwhelmed. You may be hopeless and helpless. You may be confused and unsure. You may be upset and frustrated with God. You may feel abandoned and alone right now. You may be terrified of the giant that stands in front of you. You may be hated and mistreated for nothing that you've done. You may be having traps and attacks coming from every direction. You may feel all alone with nowhere to turn and no one to turn to. But my question to you is this. There's three quick questions. Where are you looking? What are you trusting? Who are you following? Where are you looking? Are you looking at the giant or are you looking at your God? What are you trusting? Are you trusting in what you can accomplish? Because, yeah, you'll probably fail. Are you trusting what he can accomplish through you? What are you trusting? Who are you following? Are you following the voices of what culture is saying? Well, that means you've failed. That means you're not good enough. That means you're no longer desired. That means nobody would want you. That means you've broken the the rules and you have no hope. Or are you looking at the creator of the world who says, I love you and I desire you and I want to be with you? That even when you run off like the prodigal, I will run to you. Where are you looking? What are you trusting? Who are you following? David was brought very low so that God could build him up into the king Israel needed, not the king he could be on his own. He was preparing him and equipping him for something great. And David didn't stop short, he didn't quit in the caves. I would have quit in the cave. Got to give up. I thought you I thought you had a plan for me. Sure doesn't feel like it. But he didn't quit in the caves. Instead, even when it hurt, even when it was hard, he continued on trusting in his God and saying, you are my refuge, you are my hope, you are my portion, you are the one I look to, you are the one I praise, and I know you will deliver me. My very first job, I was a youth pastor in Georgia. I was uh, 27 years old. And uh, I remember the pastor came to me one day. We were sitting in his office, and he looked at me, and he told me these words. He says, Jordan, you know what you need most? And I was like, no, but tell me. I need to hear this. This would be great. He said, you need to fail. I was like, what? He said, you need to fail, Jordan. You need to realize that you are going to fail and that you can fail. Because right now you're working only in what you can do, and you need to learn that you need to be broken so that God can work through you, and you'll give up this, this uh, arrogant thought that you can do it all, and then you will get to a point of faith really that God, realizing that God actually can do it. You need to fail. You need to learn that failure is not final, failure is not fatal. Failure doesn't ruin your future. A lot of us are allowing failures that we have done in our past to disqualify us for what God wants to do in our future. Failure brings us to a place of brokenness needing God, not to a place of being disqualified from ever being used by God. When we fail, we start realizing that God's still sovereign even when I struggle, that He's good even when I can't see it that he's in control even when my circumstances feel impossible. See, it's easy to praise in prosperity. But character and faith and trust are revealed when the storms of life come, when the valleys of life come, when the caves of life come, when the failures of life come. Can you still praise him? Can you still believe in him? Will you still look to him? Will you still trust him? Will you still follow him? Even when it doesn't go as you want it to go. I'm going to end in the last psalm here as we transition now to our communion time as well. It's Psalm chapter 22. Go to Psalm 22. Write down Psalm 22. Read Psalm 22. It will change your life. Another psalm of David, made famous by Jesus, starts off this way. My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Jesus on the cross saying these same words, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Where are you, God? Verse 2, Oh my God, I cry by day and you do not answer. And by night and you do I find no rest? The psalm will go on to say in verse 7, All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. Verse 16 says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. This is how malnourished and how weak I am. They gloat and stare over me. They divide my garments among them, from my, and for my clothing they cast lots. Only a man who is walking through the most difficult season of his life and who has experienced this this feeling of abandonment could write with such truthfulness and honesty these words to God. But what does he also say? Verse 11. He also is a man who has experienced it but hasn't released his faith. Verse 11 says this. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. None other than you, God. Jesus will quote this psalm as he hangs naked and bloody and bruised on the cross. As the dogs encircle him, as all who see him mock him, as they cast lots for his clothing, as they pierce him in the hands and the feet. This is Jesus connecting with this same psalm going, God, I am in this situation It is a psalm of hope, though, in the struggle. Verses 9 and 10. I'll just read these. They say, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. There's hope in the struggle, there's praise in the pain. Verse 22, it says this. I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. The same God that they are struggling with, where are you, says, I will praise you to everybody I can say it to. And then I want you to hear the final verse, verse 31. If you don't highlight in your Bible, highlight in this one. He gets to the end. And he's talking about the prosperous on the earth that God will work. And then it says this, verse 31, They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. See, David is writing this a thousand years before Jesus will breathe his first breath. And David's writing about his situation. And his full belief that God will work and bring victory and that others will see it and notice God and worship him but he's also writing prophetically in something more than he would ever understand, probably. Of the one that, who's going to be greater and establish that everlasting kingdom, as it says in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But he's talking about the one who has a righteousness that will be proclaimed from generation to generation. He's writing of Jesus as well. And what does he say in the final words? Go back to uh, 22, 31, please, Julia. He has... Done it. Today we eat and drink of the fact that he has done it. In what looked like God abandoning his son, he was fulfilling his promise. In what looked like certain defeat, God was cementing his victory for all times. He has done it. Jesus says in his final breath, it is finished. Everything that I came to do has been done. Friends, you may be walking through a really difficult season of trial and struggle. You may feel lonely or depressed or anxious or overwhelmed or helpless or hopeless or unsure or conflicted. And I ask you those same three questions Where are you looking? What are you trusting? Who are you following? David, in his season of struggle, kept his focus on his God. What about you? Where are you looking? What are you trusting? Who are you following? Psalm 34, and I'm just going to flip there myself. Psalm 34 is another psalm of David that says, and we sing it every few months here, taste and see that the Lord is good. Again, writing this on his journey of fleeing from Saul. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in Him. Friends, today, as we take communion, what we are going to be doing is tasting and seeing that our Lord is good. That He has shown Himself to be good. That he has proved himself to be good over and over and over again. That no matter the circumstance I walk through or the situation that I am in, my God is still with me. He can be my refuge. He can be my hope. He can be my shelter. Together, as we celebrate communion, we don't celebrate our circumstances, but we celebrate our God who's above those. We celebrate his goodness we celebrate the sacrifice that says no matter what may come in this life, I know that you have bought my place with you for eternity. And so I invite you to, if anybody does not have one of these, if you will, just raise your hand. Anybody not get one on your way in? Okay. Ron, we got a few back there. It's all good. I invite you to consider, as Jesus was in the upper room for the Passover the night that they were celebrating that God had delivered His people in an impossible situation from the hands and the oppression of Israel and how He had destroyed the firstborn with the angel of death of all those who had not put their faith in Him. And it was a night to remember that our God can do amazing things, great things, that our God can deliver in the midst of impossible situations. And yet Jesus said, I want to teach you something even better than that, a new covenant I give to you. This covenant is built on my body and my blood. And so he took the bread. You're welcome to open it and hold the bread. He took the bread. And he said, this is my body broken for you. I am giving it for you. I am laying it down for you. I am paying your ransom with my body. And he says, This is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And with that, we take and eat, tasting and seeing the goodness of our God. And then he took the cup. And it had been seared in their brain that without the blood, there was no forgiveness. And Jesus said, this cup is my blood poured out for you. Me giving all of who I am so that you can be fully forgiven. Jesus passed around the cup and he said this is my blood poured out for you to pay your debt to to grant you my righteousness to cover you completely he said this is my blood take and drink And when we take and drink and eat, we are remembering the goodness of our God. We are tasting and seeing that He is good. Let me pray for us as we